Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Mike Marinacci. His last name is spelled M-A-R-I-N-A-C-C-I. And he has just published a book, very really fascinating book. Title of the book is Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches, LSD, Cannabis, and Spiritual Sacraments in Underground America. And this is not his first book. He published in 2018, Erie, California, Strange Places and Odd Phenomena in the Golden State. And then I think his first book in 2016 was California Jesus, A Slightly Irreverent Guide to the Golden State's Christian Sects, Evangelists, and Latter-day Prophets. And uh, he has done a lot of research in this book. He's been researching this topic for many decades. He actually uh, talked with one of my guests, Carl Hassel. We went over the peyote church, peyote way church of god uh sect or sect that's involved that's actually a, a chapter in this book but it was interesting to to see carl mentioned in in this book but i think it's a very timely book and i think it ties into a lot of things that are going on in the culture mm -hmm. uh, mike writes about this entheogenic revival and i think that's still in people's minds in the culture and we we're just talking about other names and places uh, that are happening right now so i think that this is all very important material so Mike Marinacci, welcome to the show. Thank you, William. I'm uh, happy to be here and uh, discuss the book. Yeah, you just published it July 4th, 2023. Today's the 15th. So mm -hmm. can you kind of talk about your background? I know that you spent a lot of time researching this and uh, you're in kind of the Northern California area where a lot of this stuff is and a lot of people are. Maybe you can just talk about putting the book together. Well, um, I grew up in Southern California, actually, and was raised more or less secular humanist. And when I went off to college, I started experimenting with uh, entheogens and had some very profound experiences on psilocybin and LSD, which I interpreted as religious or spiritual revelations. And they stuck with me. And then years later, I became very interested in alternate alternative spirituality and uh, sort of underground religions and groups, churches, sects, cults you don't normally hear about. And I found out that there was a whole family of groups that were formed to uh, create communities of people that share the psychedelic experience. Now, the problem was this was the mid-late 80s when I discovered all this stuff, and that was really the high tide of the Reagan-Bush war on drugs. And these groups were either defunct or very, very underground and very cautious about um, who they reached out to. So I was only able to get a very limited amount of information about them. And then in the next decade, when we had the sort of beginning of the psychedelic renaissance with Terrence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson and people like that, it got more above ground and you started seeing new uh, groups emerging. And then I started collecting more data about them and talking to the founders of some of these groups and uh, um actually doing some uh, some participant observer work uh, with them. And then finally, uh, just a couple years ago, I uh, looked at this mass of, uh, of information I'd collected over the years, and I said, well, there's a book here. Uh, a friend of mine who is a uh, freelance uh, 
acquisitions editor got me a contract with Inner Traditions. Uh, very, uh, they're pretty much the metaphysical subjects book uh, publisher in North America, and um, I produced the book Psychedelic Churches, Cults, and Outlaw Churches. Uh, it's based on I'd say over thirty years of research and a lot of very deep digging and a lot of reaching out to some pretty colorful people, if obscure. Uh, and it really tells the story of this religious underground in North America where cannabis and LSD and psilocybin and peyote and other psychoactive substances are treated as the sacraments of, of their churches, as the way that the people involved uh, come together as a community and seek the divine uh, through the use of these, uh, these substances. Right. And so the, these, these substances were indigenous. So a lot of, there's a kind of a, a thread through your book of these kind of the European uh, people contacting these older indigenous people for these drugs, such as peyote. Certainly and, in North uh, America. Yeah. 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 Peyote has been used in North America for at least 7,000 years. Um, psilocybin probably goes back as far, but that was more of something that, um, was in Mexico and was rediscovered, uh, in the mid fifties by a man named R. Gordon Wasson, who he and his wife contacted a, uh, curandera there named Maria Sabina, who, um, turned them on to the, the secrets of uh, the psilocybin mushroom. And then the word got out from there. As far as peyote, that's really been, um, more the American and Canadian uh, indigenous uh, entheogen. They, um, it really got, peyote usage really got going in the U.S. in the wake of the so-called ghost dance movement among the Indians and the Wounded Knee Massacre when it was obvious that they'd been completely conquered um, by the colonists after four centuries. And America's indigenous people said, okay, what's next? What, what do we need to, to keep our hope alive and to keep up our, our identity as Indians and, and give us a vision for the future? And so uh, peyote meetings started spreading throughout uh, the American tribes and an anthropologist named James Mooney, a white anthropologist who was very sympathetic to the Indians and to the peyotists said, you know, now that you're in the United States, you're under the protections of the Constitution and a prime one for the citizens is the First Amendment, which uh, which allows freedom of religious practice. What you need to do is incorporate all these peyote uh, circles and little groups as a church. And so in 1918, the Native American church was, uh, was incorporated in Oklahoma and then spent the next 75 years um, fighting in various courts, uh, federal, state, and tribal, for their right to consume peyote in ceremony as a holy sacrament. And finally, after many, many years of struggle, in 1994, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act amendments passed and allowed anybody who was an enrolled member of a Native American tribe and could prove one quarter or more uh, Native American ancestry to be part of the Native American church and um, the, the, the and, peyote, and peyote would be allowed to them in this sacred context. For everybody else, it's still a, 
a Schedule One uh, federal crime to possess or cultivate or use it. Uh, and things really kind of went from there. Uh, the active uh, psychedelic ingredient of peyote, of course, is mescaline. And then in 1954, Aldous Huxley had his bestseller about his mescaline trips called uh, The Doors of Perception. And that awakened a lot of popular interest in it, along with uh, R. Gordon Lawson's uh, sort of discovery of, of psilocybin for the non-Mexican indigenous world. Then you had also the invention of LSD in the 1940s by Albert Hoffman and its uh, marketing as a sort of psychological wonder drug to um, psychiatrists and uh, NMDs uh, in the Western world. And that LSD, of course, was uh, the, the great popularizer of it for non-clinical uses, of course, was Timothy Leary, whose career I discuss it in length in the Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches. Uh, and then you had the tied-in uh, phenomenon of cannabis being used as a, um, as a sacrament, certainly in the old world. In Asia and certain parts of Europe and certain parts of Africa, there is a records of the use of cannabis as um, for mind expansion and spiritual growth. And it we in the 1930s in the U.S. Of course, we had the uh, the whole reefer madness panic, which really shunted it to the far fringes of, uh, of American culture. But then it was rediscovered by the uh, the beatniks in the 50s and then the hippie uh, culture in the 60s and really became so closely identified with the hippie culture and with the hippie culture's interest in uh, using psychoactives for uh, consciousness expansion that it became part of the, um, the family of, of, uh, of mind-expanding psychoactives that we call entheogens. And there have been churches and sects and cults uh, established around its use in a sacred context too. And I go into them in uh, psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. Right. And can you kind of go into some of those that uh, used cannabis as kind of a sacrament or an entheogen? Well, um, in many ways, the original one would have been, at least in this part of the world, would have been the Rastafarians, uh, who started around the 1950s in Jamaica and kind of spread through the Caribbean among the, uh, the African diaspora population there. They saw uh, Emperor Haile Selassie of um, Ethiopia as sort of a second coming and the the great, uh, the great black savior that had been predicted by people like uh, Marcus Garvey. And they used uh, what they call ganja as, uh, or cannabis as a, a sacrament in their, in their rites. Um, ganja had been brought to Jamaica in the 19th century by uh, Asian Indian uh, immigrants and workers. And the group I'm most interested in in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches there is the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church, who were the first of these uh, of these Rastafarian what they call houses in Jamaica to reach out to white people and say black and white must unite. We need to both be consuming the sacrament and leading these very straight laced Old Testament biblical lifestyles and living communally. And seeing Haile Selassie as our, uh, our great prophet, if we are going to overthrow Babylon, which is basically the White West, and create a new world, uh, a new righteous and holy world. 
they inspired a lot of people. And then there were also uh, groups that just kind of, that, that came from other sources. One very interesting one that I get into in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches was called the Shiva Fellowship. Um, they were started by a, a man named Willie Minzy in San Francisco. He had gone east uh, to India on the hippie trail in the 60s and had, uh, and when he was in India, he started hanging out with the uh, the sadhus, the, uh, the, and there was a faction of these Hindu, who, Hindu holy men who worshipped the god Shiva and used uh, ganja sacramentally there, and he was initiated into their order and vowed to bring worship of Shiva uh, through cannabis back to the U.S., and he set up a group in San Francisco called the Shiva Fellowship. And for a couple of years, they would have these very large, open um, ceremonies in Golden Gate Park in the city where cannabis was openly smoked, and they were generally tolerated by the law until he and some of his associates started pushing things a bit. Um, he was eventually busted there for providing narcotics to a minor because apparently one uh, preteen kid had gotten a hold of a joint at one of these ceremonies and started smoking it. Um, he was sent away, and then the Shiva Fellowship spun off into another much more radical group called the Psychedelic Venus Church, uh, led by his lieutenant, uh, Jefferson Poland, who was a very famous um, new left activist and uh, founder of the Sexual Freedom League. And he combined uh, sacramental use of cannabis with goddess uh, worship, fo focus on Venus and Kali and Aphrodite and all these uh, female uh, divine figures. And also uh, body positivity and sacred sex rights and quasi-tantric practices. And I have a big chapter about them in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches. They were just wild, wild group. And their, their story has never really been told until now. Yeah, I've never really, I've never heard of that. I've never heard yeah. of either of them. And they, yeah. they were in the whole Haight-Ashbury, uh, late 60s kind of cultural yeah. explosion of, in San Francisco, right? Oh, yeah. And Ber Berkeley was really their stronghold, but they had a lot of things going on in San Francisco where they would stage these, quote, ceremonies, end quote, which were basically uh, psychedelic, these Dionysian psychedelic rock dances where the bands and everybody in the audience would be nude and everybody would be tripping on uh, LSD spiked punch and uh, there'd be uh, orgies happening in some rooms. I mean, just really crazy crazy stuff i mean it's um and i'd say a lot of this stuff kind of kind of uh laid the seeds planted the seeds for what we have now with burning man and raves and right. things like that i mean this is a this is a fairly old phenomenon this thing of having these uh these ecstatic uh group experiences on entheogens that many people interpret as having spiritual significance and growing them spiritually. And that's really kind of, you know, kind of the, the, the thread I've followed in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. Right. And so they were kind of around at that time, Ginsburg, when was the human being? That was 67, 67, January 67. And oh, that so was, of course, um, there's, footage you can see on YouTube of uh, Timothy Leary speaking at that and then issuing his his great soundbite, turn on, tune in, drop out. 
um, that was in many ways kind of the, the high point of the original hippie culture. And then it, it just kind of exploded from there into the rest of America and the Western world. And, and it still, I think, is influencing um, world culture and music and fashion and um, spirituality. And really so much of that is tied into the psychedelic experience and into the, um, um, the then until late 1966, LSD was legal in the United States and it was being used by a lot of people. And many of them were saying, I've had this spiritual breakthrough on this chemical. Um, and they, they would find each other and start these little groups uh, centered on the communal use of LSD. And then of course, later cannabis. And then they discovered peyote through the American Indians and psilocybin uh once people figured out how easy it is to uh to fruit those the mushrooms uh that contain it and it's a it is an ongoing phenomenon and in many ways i think it's it's gotten bigger than ever because of the uh, increasing mainstream attention on and respectability of uh, entheogens now i mean last month in uh, in denver they had that the huge maps conference there twelve thousand people showed up to that conference to uh, to discuss all the aspects of the psychedelic culture and its use for therapy and um, indigenous history and practices. It is just, it is bigger than ever. It just seems to be one of these things that uh, it's, it's like uh, John Barleycorn. You keep trying to kill him. He just keeps coming back and getting stronger. Right. The interest has never waned. And I think yeah. that being was important too, because I think the Grateful Dead played there too. So that's another oh, yeah. kind of this, this cultural musical yeah. thing you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. It was a bunch of things. It was really the counterculture coalescing. It was Leary, the Dead, and the Jefferson Airplane representing music. Uh, Allen Ginsberg and Lenore Kandel was the author of the Love Poem, representing literature. Jerry Rubin for political militancy. It was all these things. Uh, this gathering that um, just was so key and that just kind of things from there just, just exploded and went all over the, the world. And that was, that was really ground zero as, as was the, the hate until it, it, it really began to decay in late 67 and early 68. And even then it was, it was still a hot spot. I mean, that's where the, um, the Shiva fellowship really came out of, out of the, uh, the post summer of love hate and kept a lot of things going there. Right, no, it is fascinating, and I think an interesting aspect of this whole cults and these outlaw churches is how they maneuvered around the law. Right, so you had these other groups you mentioned, the Orange Sunshine Conspiracy, Leary himself. Like, mm -hmm. well, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things they had to do to try to not end up in jail forever. Right, I mean, even Leary, right, he got busted. Yeah, for yeah. Well, the defense they always used was based on the one that had been originated with the Native American church. This is our First Amendment right under freedom of religion. We are using these substances as our sacraments to uh, address our God or our prime mover, or whatever you want to call it, uh, in our way and grow spiritually and they should not be prohibited to us if we use them in this context. Now, they didn't have much luck in the 60s and 70s and 80s using this argument, but 
things have been changing recently. Um, there have been more courts now that are making very limited and guarded rulings saying, yes, if you are a, a, an adult who is sincerely religious and is using these in that context, we're not going to overthrow the laws about them, but we're not going to prosecute you for it either. Uh, it's kind of moving into a gray area. Um, there's a good was a good case a couple of years ago about one of the groups I cover in uh, psychedelic cults and outlaw churches called the Oratory of Myst Mystical Sacraments. They they're kind of uh, they're kind of intriguing in that instead of uh, doing in using indigenous symbolism and rites or Eastern Buddhist Hindu stuff or neo-pagan goddess worship, they're very much interested in alchemy and Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry and these very Western hermetic um, kind of left brain uh, forms of, of consciousness expansion. And one of their members was busted in New Hampshire for possession of psilocybin. He fought the, uh, he, he fought the bust in court and it went to the state Supreme Court there and the state Supreme Court ruled, yes, this is a re legitimate religious path and he's sincere and he shouldn't be prosecuted for uh, for possession here. Now, the problem with that ruling was it only applies in in New Hampshire, but it's rather it was rather surprising to see a state supreme court uh, come out with that. Uh, it, it is an indication, I think, that that things are changing now. That this is being more recognized in a in 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 uh, in jurisprudence um, in in a limited fashion, of course. But things are loosening up. Yeah, it is interesting, but that's why they had to be outlaws, right? Because at that time, like, uh, they'd go to jail forever. Like, I think Absolutely. that that was a huge... Can you talk about the Orange Sunshine, uh, the Brotherhood okay. of Eternal Love? Well, that would... Yeah, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, very interesting group, and a couple of full-length, very good full-length books have been written about them. Um, they sort of originated in Orange County, California in the early and mid-60s as these... Uh, basically hoodlum greasers and uh, and stoner surfers who started doing LSD and realized that um, there's a lot more to this life than uh, than boosting hubcaps and catching waves and be, and said we're you know we're giving up our, our our criminal lives we're going to become brother a brotherhood a holy brotherhood that is uh, dedicated to turning on the world to LSD now they were they financed themselves by dealing cannabis and later hashish that was uh, smuggled in from Latin America and Asia. But much of the acid that they um, that they distributed, uh, which included <coughs> orange sunshine, which was uh, developed under their uh, <coughs> un, un, under their aegis and became kind of a brand name of uh, of LSD in the late sixties. Much of it they just distributed free because they saw this as um, as their calling to turn on the world. Um, they would go to concerts or counterculture parties or events and just give out fistfuls of these these little orange pills. Um, they uh, and they got in a lot of trouble um, on an international level because so much of what they were doing was was global based, both in in, in the smuggling and the uh, vending and distribution. And uh, they were 
by the 70s, they'd really kind of lost a lot of the, the idealistic earlier vision, and they were, um, they were dealing cocaine along with everything else. And that, at that point, the U.S. and other governments were really stomping down on them and uh, busting their, uh, their leaders and members and sending them away for long prison sentences. And I get into their, their uh, long and rather, uh, rather complex story in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. They're still around as a sort of symbolic organization. The old brothers are, uh, many of them are still out there writing their own memoirs and doing documentaries. And I know several of them. And one of the funny things about them is they inevitably, when they're asked about the brotherhood, they say, well, yeah, I was a member from the early days. I knew uh, farmer John Griggs, who was the founder, you know, I was there. That other guy, he's, he's fake. He, I don't know him. He was never with us. And then you go to the other guy and he says the same thing. It's, it's very uh there's this kind of rivalry about who is true brotherhood and who isn't yeah no it's very interesting i did an interview with uh, mcdonough who wrote a book about william pickard so i was oh, kind yeah. of familiar kind of with some of those yeah. people in that environment but he pickard says that there was an underground group of like six or eight guys who were responsible for creating most of the psychedelics in the world or something something crazy like that i forgot the name of his book but Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a but the, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And then of course in in uh, in Britain in the 70s there was uh, the whole operation Julie case where you had yeah, just a handful of chemists that were producing these insane amounts of LSD uh, that were going all over Europe and into other parts of the world and um, that was really uh, kind of what re stimulated the uh, the original interest in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love among researchers and writers was because there was a book called um, called the uh, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which came out in Britain, not the USA, in the late seventies, late seventies, early eighties, and looked at the connections that the Brotherhood and the uh, the Julie chemists in England and Wales had with each other. That it was this like international conspiracy again, to, to turn on the world through lysergic acid. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Like yeah. how, and now it's like you see this, this opening of the psychedelic. It's still, the interest is still there, but it seems like, like marijuana, California, mm -hmm. I mean, incredible. Yeah. Like, and it, yeah. the, you know, the sky didn't fall once it got there. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Right. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating how, how quickly it is, it has become mainstream and how, how acceptable it is now, because I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm 62 years old. I remember back in my, my early, my adult, still by my adolescence, it was still, mere possession was still a felony. And then they passed a, a law in California that said, okay, if you're caught with one ounce or less, it's just a, a civil uh, offense and you're fined a hundred dollars. And then things kind of progressed from there. And then, of course, by the mid-90s in the state, you had uh, legal medicinal cannabis. And then you had the, the complete across-the-board legalization 20 years later. And other states, of course, have followed suit. Nevada and, Calif and Colorado were the first. But now I think it's something like 37 states have either complete legal, completely legal or medicinal is legal or just very, very reduced penalties. I think only 13 states are left that um, where mere possession is is still a, a criminal offense. Right. But it was pretty edgy back in those days, 60s, 70s. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. also yeah. underground money. So you had yeah. 
-hmm. this outlaw element to it. Yeah. Uh, and I need to really qualify two were the two of the words I used in the titles of psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. When I use the word cults, I'm using it in the original term, original meaning for religious sociologists, meaning a new non-orthodox, non-mainstream religious group. The word cult started becoming pejorative after Jonestown. And what I'm trying to do is reclaim it, really, and just say it shouldn't have the baggage attached to it uh, that has been laid on it, uh, associating that word with really evil groups like um, like People's Temple or um, or Heaven's Gate or what have you. Now, the word outlaw, as in outlaw churches, there's a difference between being an outlaw and a criminal. A criminal is a murderer, a rapist, a thief, somebody who is committing acts that all societies deem forbidden because they're, they're deeply destructive to individuals and to the social order. An outlaw is somebody who is violating laws of a particular time and place and society knows they're violating them and chooses to kind of remain in this position where they're vulnerable. Um, I would say in the, in the middle ages, being a, uh, not being a member of the Catholic church in Europe would make you an outlaw. Right. Um, what there be, if you were in, in the U S in the 1850s and working in the, the underground railroad, freeing slaves, you were an outlaw. Um, there's, it's a big distinction between the two. I am not saying these churches and individuals in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches are criminal in any way, although much of what they're doing is legally prohibited. It's just that they're standing against uh, the laws of this particular time and place and society regarding the use of psychoactive chemicals. Right. And there, there is kind of an element of kind of like people pushing the boundaries. Leary had people around him yeah. like... Uh, uh, the Millbrook guy, what was his name? Art Kleps. Yeah, Kleps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you well, talk about him? Oh, really fascinating character. Well, like Leary, um, Kleps was a former psychologist and World War II era veteran and from the Northeast and from a fairly straight-laced background. His dad was a Lutheran pastor. And he actually turned on to psychedelics months before Leary did. He tried mescaline in early 1960 and had an incredible experience. And then three months later, I think Leary had his first trip on psilocybin mushrooms in, uh, in Mexico. And then uh, years, three years later, when the Millbrook commune was established in upstate New York at this palatial old uh, mansion uh, near Poughkeepsie, he heard about it and joined uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, later to become Ram Das there, and kind of had a falling out with some of the other locals and said, I'm going to form my own organization. I'm going to call it the New American Church. And we're going to be very serious about using cannabis and LSD as sacraments, and we were going to fight in the courts for it. But our own view of ourselves as in the church we don't want to get too institutionalized. We don't want to get all serious and hidebound and straight-laced like every other uh, organized religion that's out there. Let's make it fun. 
So he deliberately put these absurdist elements into the church. I mean, uh, ministers of the church are called boohoos. The symbol of the church is a three-eyed toad, which is, of course, is a reference to uh, psychedelic toads and bufatinin. Um, the church... Um, the church hymns were row, row, row your boat and puff the magic dragon. Um, the church, the sacred church key was a bottle opener. There was this very kind of Dada element uh, he, he put into it to keep, uh, to reflect, I think, the playful side of the psychedelic experience and also to keep it from becoming just another boring old religious institution. Um and real, uh, very smart guy, very, very skilled author, but also like many people, if not most people in this, uh, this underground, this, this sort of demimon that I'm describing in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches, kind of messed up. Um, alcoholic, became a tranquilizer addict, very, very difficult man to deal with from my own experiences and from the experience of other people who've, uh, who've uh, worked with him or lived with him. Leary, um, certainly, if you read Robert Greenfield's biography, does not come off very favorably much of the time as a, as a person. Um, Jefferson Poland of the Psychedelic Venus Church, who I was talking about earlier, um, I get into his gross dysfunctions in uh, psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. Normal people, well-adjusted people, uh, functional, high-functioning people who really fit perfectly into the society do not start new religions. That's just been, been the case, I think, from day one. It's always been outlaw country. It's always been where people who are a little off, who are misfits, who are vi or strange visionaries go. Um, it's, uh, I think that's just the nature of what we're talking about here. And of course, when you mix in this mind-expanding uh, psychoactives, uh, to to a religion, then you're really in uh, in 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 new territory, an unfamiliar territory. Although, if one looks at uh, the history of of uh, human civilization and human religio religiosity, there's uh, there's drugs in the, at the very beginning. Whether it was um, whether they be um, the soma of the ancient Aryans in the, in the Hindu culture or um, cannabis in various places and there's a really good book out there by brian murarescu a bestseller called the immortality key where he uh, finds all this evidence in the uh, in the old world uh abramic uh sects uh particularly ancient the ancient hebrews and very early christianity of them turning on with various substances as part of their uh, religious rites so on one sense it's in one sense it's very um very avant-garde and new in certainly in North American uh, civilization, modern post post uh, post indigenous. And on the other hand, it's very primal. This is something that just seems to be there at the beginning in a lot of places. Yeah, it's around ancient Greece as well. There's all kinds mm -hmm. of stories of them doing. Oh yeah, yeah, even the Romans had like they licked a specific fish. I forgot yeah. what it was, but they would try to get high off dirt search and stuff. So yeah. it's been yeah. around. I think that really what was very curious is you went from the staid post-war 50s into the 60s where these mm -hmm. drugs went around and it created yeah. this explosion of these different mm -hmm. drugs yeah. and cultures and cults mm -hmm. and of different churches. I mean, it's really yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a real learning process because these are people who were kind of like 
the psychedelic forebears, people who experimented. So you can kind of see mm -hmm. what came out of all this stuff. And, and we're kind of a different chapter, a different kind of uh, cultural phase than the 60s now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, we, yeah, uh, much more is known about yes. about them now, even though so much research was prohibited because of Schedule One uh, strictures. There has been a lot of um, pharmacological research, chemical research, and of course, psychological uh, since the 60s. And I was talking to an interviewer the other day, and he said, yeah, it's different now because you know, we were talking about the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. He says, yeah, back then it was just yeah, throwing them, throwing out handfuls of, of uh, orange sunshine tablets. Oh, yeah, everybody should carry this. Everybody should turn on everybody. And now it's more, no, it's we need to be more controlled. We need to be more, more careful and more mindful of what we're doing because this is, this is playing with dynamite. A lot of the time, these are, there's a reason these are life changing substances and there is definitely potential for abuse with them. So what we're working out now at things like that maps conference last month and in other uh, communities is okay. How do we approach this experience how do we make sure that what we're using is the, what it's, what people say it is? Um, and what do we do during the experience and how do we integrate this experience into our lives once we're, uh, we're, we're back on the ground? Um, I know that one of the best things Larry ever said was the whole importance of three things, set, setting, and dosage. Set is your, your, uh, where your mind is, where your consciousness and, uh, and psychology is, your sort of internal state when you take a, uh, a psychoactive. Setting is your environment. Where are you in space, time, what's happening around you, who are you with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, dosage is what exactly are you getting and how much of it are you using? You've got to be very conscious of those three things, I think, when you are using any uh, entheogen. Right. And even even the standard drugs of today, alcohol, those are very important. Those three settings are important as well. Absolutely. So even illegal stuff. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's incredible. LSD now people are doing it. It's associated with the tech environment. People are micro dosing. Yeah. So it's just explode. It's just uh, yeah. turned into a kaleidoscope of uses and approaches and things. Mm -hmm. I mean, it even goes into yeah. DNA, like the guy who uh, figured out the PCR test said he was on acid, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Um, one thing I like to—I always like to—it's—it's it's my uh, paraphrased quote when I'm talking about the, the difference between, um, say, mere recreational use and mind-changing use of um, of cannabis, which can be used for both. I always like to uh, to paraphrase what uh, a saying attributed to uh, Mickey Spillane about beer. Uh, my paraphrase would be anyone who can't have a psychedelic experience on cannabis isn't trying. It's again, set setting and dosage. You can either have a good party or you can really uh, expand your mind quite a bit and have this, the spiritual uh, growth that I talk about in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. Yeah, I mean, great conversation, really interesting book, thoroughly researched, you've done years of study. I mean, what, uh, is there anything you'd like to add when we uh, wrap this up or anything I missed? Well, in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches, I've 
pretty much kept my own judgments out of it. I've just laid out the stories of these groups as I've been able to put them together from my own research and interviews and experiences. And I don't make any claims in the book about which groups and leaders and figures are legitimate and which of them are probably scams or just, um, and whether I also do not advocate or, um, or oppose the use of any of these substances. I think it's something that intelligent, responsible adults have to make their own decisions about how and when and why they are going to expand their internal, their internal consciousness in any way. So I've, I've tried to stay as objective as I can and just tell the stories as, um, as they are. And let, let readers decide when they read Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches, what's, is this legitimate? Is this not? Um, what's really going on here? There's a lot of people I'd never heard of. I haven't heard of the the uh, guy was Mooney or the Aitken family. It's like some of these yeah. people are not as colorful as Leary or something. Maybe uh, history yeah. hasn't done the, done them a proper service. So I think you did yeah. that service and included yeah. them in this. Where's the best place to get this book? Mike? You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any of the usual outlets. Um, if your local bookstore doesn't have it, have them special order it for you. Um, you can find me on Instagram. You can find it on, um, on Facebook. Uh, it's, um, I'm just going out there and trying to tell as many people as I can about it because it really is my, uh, my literary and, uh, pop sociology baby. And I'm trying to, to get it to grow and flourish and, um, really in, instruct and entertain people, uh, regarding this, um, this whole religious, uh, um, underground and counter and subculture. Right. So you've got it on Kindle and paperback right oh, now. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's on Kindle. You can read it on your, your tablet. And where's the best place for people to contact you if they want to follow up or have any additional questions? Okay. Um, I would say the best way would be my email, which is Mike at psychedelic cults. That's all one word. Dot com. Mike at psychedeliccults.com. I'll put that on there. Do you have a do you have a website, Mike? I didn't even check. Yeah, there is the psychedeliccults.com website, but I haven't really populated it yet. I've been okay, just gotcha. busy with so many other things here that uh, I will eventually get some materials onto them. I do have a pretty good Instagram page for it. If you look on Instagram okay. for psychedelic cults, um, it's got filled with uh, uh, photos and illustrations that I couldn't use in the book for technical or legal purposes. Um, of, that pertain to these uh, these groups and psychedelic cults and outlaw churches, and some are quite uh, quite amusing and striking. I'll put a I'll find that Instagram page. I will put yeah. a link to that. I will also yeah. put a link to your email. Okay. And again, the author's name is Mike Marinacci, and the title of the book is Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches: LSD, Cannabis, and Spiritual Sacraments in Underground America. Just published July fourth, twenty twenty three. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, William. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, okay. Stay there. Stay there.